morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Lakeside. Glad you're with us. My name is Steve Collard, and my wife, Lady, and I attend Lakeside. And I want to extend you a very warm welcome. Glad you're with us today. The subject today is broken. I know, that's something to get fired up about, right? <laughs> it made me think of when I was in high school. I wasn't an athlete. By the time I was a junior in high school, I was already in accountant mode. I was a statistician for the football team. The problem was we had a ragtag football team. In my junior year, they were two and seven, two wins, seven losses. In my senior year, they were zero wins, nine losses, and I was a statistician. And my job, the coach said, was to go in at halftime and give them some statistics so they could plan the second half and then call the newspaper after the game and tell them the score and the main statistics. And uh, I would go in at halftime and say, well, coach, we're minus 75 yards in rushing, and our quarterback got sacked six times, and the other team had six touchdowns. And after about the fourth game, he said, you don't have to come in here at halftime anymore. <laughs> and after about the sixth game, he said, you don't have to call the paper after the game anymore. <laughs> and uh, it feels like broken. Okay, broken. But we started right from the beginning, our first song, which is called, Is He Worthy? The first line, do you feel the world is broken? And responsibly we sang, we do. Do we feel the world is broken? Does that seem like an archaic concept? The world is broken. You know, the world, we all know, is a tough place to live in these days. So tough, in fact, that we can't bear to watch the news some days. We see this brokenness across the world and within our own lives. We see big global problems. We look around, we see countries meddling with one another, spying on one another, threatening one another, corruption, misinformation. We hear constantly about the pandemic of transmission rates and case rates and deaths. We hear of terror groups kidnapping, wounding, killing innocent people shootings, tensions, injustice, cries for help. We see these things just when we're trying to go through our normal everyday life, going to work, going to school, living at home. And then we see personal brokenness, broken relationships, broken marriages, broken families, children who are in trouble, who no longer see things the same way their parents did and their Separated from them, siblings who don't talk to one another. We might face a job loss or job dissatisfaction, financial burdens, families or friends with health issues, lost loved ones, heartbreaking circumstances we see, we see broken. But here's the thing. Saying the world is broken is not the same as saying there is no hope. Hope for this broken world, we will see today, was a promise God made from the very beginning. I recently came across a great example of a young boy who had found a way to maintain hope in the midst of some of the most difficult circumstances I've ever seen. His name is Jonathan Bryan. He lives in Great Britain. He was born with severe cerebral palsy couldn't walk, couldn't talk, couldn't feed himself. 
Because he couldn't communicate, it was impossible for them to know what he was comprehending inside that body. In nine years of attempts as he grew older to provide him with tools to communicate failed. He was given the label PMLD, stands for Profound and Multiple Learning Difficulties. And if not for his mother's care, he would have just been pushed into a corner until he died. His mother cared for him. She took him to school and church. She sat with him outdoors. She arranged for him to be with other children. She knew in her heart that he was in there somewhere and that he knew what she was doing. When he was nine years old, his mother discovered that he could communicate with the spelling board in his eyes. He still can't speak. And so he could begin to communicate back with his family, with the world. And he actually wrote a book called I Can Write, with E-Y-E, I Can Write. And he's become an advocate for teaching disabled children how to read and write. Because so often, attempts are given up. And he won the Diana Legacy Award from Prince William and Prince Harry for his work lobbying for other children. At a young age, before he could speak, and nobody knew, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. He placed his faith in Christ. His father was a pastor. And so he was taken to church. When they discovered that he could communicate finally, it was like a floodgate for the family. They wanted to ask him so much. They had had two more children. And they had never been able to communicate with him. And so they asked him, you know, what was your first memory? What, what were you thinking when we were in the hospital with you? And he almost died several times. And then they asked him, what's important to you? And he said, mommy, Jesus. Susanna, Jemima, those were his sisters, daddy. But Jesus, that was a surprise to them. And as I said, his father was a pastor. He was surrounded by Christians. He had sat in church, but they didn't know he had trusted God. Although he was trapped in his broken body, he had found hope and peace. And so after he became well-known for his book, someone asked him the question, why do you think God gave you cerebral palsy? And this is what he said. This question is so flawed. Why would people think God gives out illnesses? God is good. An illness was never part of his plan. But illness is not a barrier to God having a plan for you. Through God's grace, I'm accepted for who I am by a God who loves me as I am. With Jesus, life is richer Life is deeper. Life is fulfilled. This boy, who's now 12, Jonathan Bryan, has more challenges in his life than most of us will ever have. But out of this brokenness, he still insisted that God is good. So the question is, if, if God is good and illness wasn't 
part of his plan. What happened? Why is the world broken? What went wrong? So our first point today is what went wrong? And the answer we're finding in Genesis chapter 3 is sin entered the world. That's what went wrong. Remember last week we were in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and God created the world. It was all good. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. God made Adam and Eve in his image. They were living in a garden of paradise, enjoying the presence of God. They lived in perfect relationship with God and with one another. They had accepted all that was good from God. Life was innocent and intimate. And so now we move on to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to begin at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So this is God's account of how the world became broken. It was because of man's choice to disobey God. And here we see the appearance of Satan controlling a serpent to deceive and tempt Eve. Now we're not told in this passage that the serpent was Satan or that the serpent was under Satan's control. We're given a hint in verse 15, when judgment comes upon the power, we haven't read that verse yet, but when judgment comes upon the power behind the serpent, and it says to the woman, the woman's offspring will bruise your head. And that's the only indication we have. But remember, we're studying this as an epic plan to help us understand the whole word of God. And so throughout the Bible, we get a picture of Satan as a cruel adversary against God, against his truth, against the people God desires to save. And so there are lookbacks to this moment we're reading about and also identification. So the Apostle John refers to the serpent as Satan when giving a prophecy of the future. We read this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then the Apostle Paul also referred to the deception of Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, 
your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And then in verse 14, he says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So the serpent came into the garden, and the first words he said were, Did God say? He distorted what God actually said in chapter 2. He changed the focus of the command. He slighted the character of God. Satan's goal is to pull us away from God and cause us to doubt God's word and his love. Let me say that again. Satan's goal is to pull us away from God, cause us to doubt God's word and his love. I put this table together that just kind of summarizes the truth and the lies that were going on at this moment. The truth and parental love and grace, God told them they could eat from every tree except one. The lie, the whole command was focused and colored by the single restrict, restriction that God had placed. In the truth, God clearly told them of the consequences of disobedience. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan directly contradicted God's word. You will not surely die. And then the third thing, God's intent was for their good. He gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to depend on him as the source of knowledge of good and evil. And Satan called into question God's character, his purpose, calling his intention petty, unwilling to share his divine position with man. God gave them everything good. Satan questioned that God was loving and gracious. And, you know, before I go on, I want to notice that questioning God's character, as Satan did, it's very different about than asking questions about what the Bible says. We often encourage each other to ask questions that we have about the Bible. In fact, we encourage good questions. What's the context for this Bible passage we're reading? What do the words mean exactly? If you don't ask these good questions, you can misinterpret the Bible. You can use it to say anything you want, like Satan's demonstrating right here in Genesis chapter 3. He uses God's word to question whether God loves Eve. So it's not about asking questions as much as obeying God or disobeying a, you know, a clear commandment of God. So the temptation comes, and Eve decides that she, not God, will determine what is good for her. It all seems very reasonable. She decides there's three good reasons to eat from the tree. Verse 6, the tree was good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. The tree was be desired to make one wise. It doesn't seem like disobedience to her. It's just a quest for wisdom. This is the nature of Satan's lies. If it looks good, if it feels good, do it. Don't worry about the consequences. Forget about what God said. And so there's an 
application in here for us right away as we review what's happened so far. In what area of your life are you ignoring God and doing what seems right to you? We often forget, as Eve forgot, God wants what is best for us. Even his commandments are given to us out of love for us. But she disobeys, and then Adam also eats of the fruit God told him he was not permitted to eat. Verse 6 says, And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. It appears, although Satan tempted Eve, that Adam was with her. He was accountable. For in eating, he was in effect claiming that he could know and decide what was good and evil without any reference to God. So both were guilty, and they realized this was their uh, new condition. They, they saw it. Their eyes were open. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And it isn't so much that they were unclothed, but that they were exposed in their guilt before God. They had disobeyed him. They had fallen. The first sinners, the first sin. And beginning at verse 8, the Lord God is near, and they try to hide. Their relationship with the loving creator is now broken. So verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I think in general, you know, we all have this perception that God's judgment for something we've done against him looks like a bolt of lightning coming down from heaven, striking us. That's not what we find God doing here as he approached the first sinners. He acted in grace towards them. Were we to have God confront us with our guilt, we might prefer the bolt of lightning, I think. We always laugh in our family when our younger brother Kevin got in trouble one time and my mom confronted him. He whined, please don't make me pray. <laughs> Anything but a conversation with God when we've done something stupid. But God approached them with love and concern concern for their welfare, concern that they understand that what just happened was so bad that it changed everything, that they understand the destructive power of sin. So we ask these questions, where are you? Who told you? Have you eaten? What is this you have done? You know, it's difficult to admit guilt. Adam and Eve could not do it well. 
Instead of simply admitting his own guilt, Adam shifted much of the blame to Eve and to God. You know, the woman you gave me wouldn't happen. You know. Then Eve shifted blame to the serpent. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Ultimately, their sin was clear. Adam and Eve, the first humans, sinned. And thereafter, all humans were born with a nature enslaved to sin. Simply put, we're not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we're sinners. One of my favorite authors, Donald Miller, said something that resonated with me. He said, I tried to go one week without thinking a negative thought about another human being, and I couldn't do it. Before I tried that experiment, I thought I was a nice person. But after trying it, I realized I thought bad things about other people all day long. We all find that we have the same tendency as Donald Miller did, no matter how hard we try. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 states why understanding this story is so important to our understanding of our condition before God. It says, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the first part of the story describes for us how sin entered the world and how humans became estranged from their creator God. Now this next section describes the consequences of that sin, this broken world. So point two is what is the result of sin? The world is broken. And we pick it up at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God offers no concern for the serpent or Satan. The physical serpent will have a miserable existence, dust. You shall eat all the days of your life. And as I mentioned, the key judgment is in verse 15. He shall bruise your head. In the ESV version I'm using, it's a little confusing, but it's clearer when you differentiate the statements. In the New International Version, it says, He will crush your head and you will strike his head. Heel. Being struck on the heel is a wound. Having your head crushed is ultimate defeat. The judgment for the deceiving serpent is ultimately to be crushed by the offspring of the woman. Next, he addresses Eve, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So the first description of brokenness is pain. Sin brings pain. In otherwise great moments of life, marriage and children, the woman will feel most painfully the consequences of our sin. 
And then he addresses Adam, verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam's first consequence from sin is also pain, related to work, sweat, and toil. The good land provided by the Creator in chapters 1 and 2, it's cursed. Human beings can no longer freely eat of the fruits of the land. Now they possess a fallen nature, fallen bodies. Because they sin, they face separation from God. A life of toil outside the garden. And the, ultimately, the ultimate penalty for sin is physical death for You are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the next steps God describes, they're heartbreaking. He describes the need to separate humans from the garden. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they would face physical death, but the immediate result was separation. Just as death is separation of the spirit from the body, Spiritual death is a separation of the person from God. The relationship with God is broken and they're separated from him. Their own relationship is broken as they blame each other for what's happened. You know, we've all felt separation in some way, being fired or laid off, divorce, the death of a loved one, the ending of a friendship, A relationship we've enjoyed is broken. It's painful. It's depressing. We conclude it can't be fixed. And there's a separation. Could Adam and Eve fix the situation? No. No, God had to expel them from the garden before things got worse for them. And for thousands of years now, the world has been affected by the fall of humans. What do we mean by broken world? We mean pain, curse of the earth, thorns, sweat, death, dust, separation. Another application question. How has the brokenness of the world affected you personally? How have you seen these things in your own life? This is how we got here. All of our global problems, all of our personal problems, man's choice to disobey God led to a broken world. Which leads us to the question, what is the hope for this broken world? It's Jesus. 
even at this awful moment when sin entered the world, even as he described the consequences of a broken world, God graciously spoke of his epic plan. We read in verse 15 again, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Though wounded in the struggle, the woman's offspring would prove victorious. So the big question is, who's the woman's offspring? And the remainder of Genesis and the Bible provide us more clues and ultimately the answer. God's plan to restore us required Jesus' death in order to provide us with eternal life. The road to Jesus, it starts right here in Genesis chapter 3. At the same time, the curse is pronounced, the plan for restoration is announced. In Paul the Apostle's letter to the Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he describes the fulfillment of God's epic plan in the person of Jesus Christ. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Genesis 3 points forward to the New Testament where we discover that just as human beings identified with Adam, we were all part of the sinful human race. We can all identify with Jesus Christ in righteousness and life. Romans 5, verse 17 For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And again, in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 21, Paul emphasizes that victory in Jesus is over sin and death. And it means eternal life for those who put their trust in Christ. It says this, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam brought sin, condemnation, death. Jesus Christ provided hope to us. He brought grace, righteousness, resurrection, and life. Restoration of the broken relationship with God to be with and like Jesus forever, that is our hope. And so it says in, later in that 1 Corinthians 15 chapter, verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Where we were like Adam in sin and death, we can now place our trust in Jesus Christ and be like him in righteousness and eternal life. We're given a future picture in Revelation chapter 22. 
beginning at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. From this broken world, through the death of Jesus, we can have a place in God's home where his throne is. With Jesus in a place of rest and perfect relationship with God, free from frustration and failure. No more pain, evil, conflict that we experience here on earth. And in that case, it will not end. His epic plan completely removes the pain, the curse, the thorns, the sweat, the death, the separation from God. How many of you parents ever bought something for your child that they ruined? Was your inclination to go out and purchase something even better for them? Not a chance. But look, this is what God is doing. We broke the relationship. We ruined God's paradise, and he's restoring it. I remember an incident with my daughter, Allie, that we laugh about now. <laughs> At the time, it wasn't that funny. I had a brand new car. Uh, it's probably the nicest car I ever had. It was a Chrysler 300. It was jade green. It had a really nice sunroof. Allie was a little girl. She was eager to drive in the new car with me. She climbed into the front seat and gazed in awe at all the buttons and lights and gadgets on the dash. Now, the day I brought it home, it had snowed about six inches, and snow was piled up on top of the car. And as I showed Allie some of the features, she, before I could stop her, she said, what's that button for? She pushed the button that opened the sunroof. And within a second or two, a mountain of snow had come down on my head and filled the interior of my new car. I don't think I was as gracious as the Lord when I said, who asked you to push that button? And she started crying and got out of the car. <laughs> and I tried to remove all the snow. You know, it didn't destroy my car. It ruined the moment, but... I wanted to say, okay, you're not allowed to ride in my car. You know, do a stupid thing like that. And yet God, in his love and his mercy and in his grace, after Adam and Eve sinned, made a way for us to have incorruptible, imperishable bodies, a new heaven and earth, even better than before. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. However broken our lives seem now, there's, there's hope in Jesus. Now that 
relationship with God can be restored now. This isn't all future future. Certainly restoration and reversal of the curse is still in front of us. I mentioned Jonathan Bryan, the boy with severe cerebral palsy at the beginning, and I just want to read one other thing that he wrote that really spoke to me. Knowing Jesus is with me, knowing Jesus is with me, cradling me in the pain, sheltering me from darkness, and beckoning me forward has given me the strength and serenity to look life in the eye and smile. I look forward with excited anticipation to the day I will see Jesus and live together with him in the garden forever. In the meantime, I cleave to Jesus, my faith, and my life. Do you have that kind of faith? A relationship with Jesus like Jonathan has? If you don't, you can. God's made a way for us to come back into proper relationship with him. His grace is free to you and to me. We know what went wrong when sin entered the world. We know the world is broken. But praise God, we know there's hope. And it's found in placing our personal faith in Jesus Christ. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can see in your word the reasons for life, the purpose for life. That we can look back and see what happened. We don't understand everything, Lord. But we do see clearly that we're sinners, that this world is broken, that we need you. We see in your word that you have a plan of salvation for us. We just need to come and accept it. Lord, we pray if there are any here who don't know you as their Savior, that they don't have that peace that comes from knowing you and having sins forgiven, that even this day they would put their trust in you. Lord, we often get down about this world. Help Help us to keep looking up. Help us to remember your plan. Help us to remember your working in this world. And that one day these things will be made whole. We look so forward to that. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the price you paid to make it happen, that you came. And you went through death for us. Thank you. We just ask that you would just speak to our hearts through your word. Help us to keep focused on you. And we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.